hanging half a hundred on him at Owen Field. Or the run rules on the diamond at Love's Field. We're giving you the breakdowns, the bets, and the hot takes from the perspective of two former OU Athletics employees. You're listening to the Mainline Podcast with Tyler Burton and Adam Jaquez. Let's go! Let's go! Go! Let's go. It's the main line. I'm Adam Jaquez. He's Tyler Burton. We are a Red Dirt Media show, and we appreciate everyone joining us this evening, whether you're live on YouTube or you're catching the podcast later on. Uh, we appreciate everybody jumping in here. We've got a lot to cover tonight. We're going to be talking about some changes that OU might need to make in 2024 to take that next step to be a national championship contender. Uh, we're going to be talking about all angles of that, whether it be the offensive line or the defensive trajectory. And then, of course, we'll, uh, we'll talk about hoops as we get into Big 12 play. Tyler, Happy New Year, though. Happy New Year, guys. Hope everybody out there had a safe, uh, Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024. Hope everybody enjoyed the time with the family and friends uh, and enjoyed the uh, college football playoffs we got to experience uh, yesterday. I thought that that was probably the two best semifinal games that we had uh, in one calendar year. It was absolutely fantastic. Two thrillers, one going to overtime, one a play away from you know, being one of the best comebacks that we've seen all season long. But no, Adam, really excited. Uh, it was a fantastic holiday. Excited to be into 2024. Uh, we're going to touch on the Alamo Bowl just briefly. We're going to look at the 2024. What does Oklahoma need to do for the re- remainder of the transfer portal? What do that we need them to do over the course of spring practice uh, in, in terms of, you know, kind of shifting or I guess basically trying to uh, find a new identity, uh, particularly within the offensive side of the football, see if we can't uh, let some of that translate into the SEC going on in year one. But Adam, just kicking off with you, man, we're not going to we're not going to stay on this topic too much. It's kind of been talked about time and time again, no matter who you listen to. But just kind of what are some of your quick thoughts on the Alamo Bowl? Is the sky falling or now that we're, you know, about a week or so removed from it? Has everybody had a chance to kind of take their breath, uh, catch their breath and figure out that, okay, it's not quite as bad as it seems, but yes, there are some deficiencies that we need to deal with. I take no pleasure in being right, but I did predict Arizona to win the game. Uh, and I, I got a little bit roasted here and there for making that prediction. Um, it's just, you know, it, it kind of played out exactly how I thought it would. Uh, Jackson Arnold, we saw some really great things out of him. We saw some really bad things out of him. That's how true freshman quarterback often play. I don't think it changes my opinion on the fact that he's going to be really good. I think it, uh, it, it does, you know, it's going to be a long off season of people saying, Oh, that's who he is. Like the story's finished with him. That's silly talk from other fan bases on Twitter, but it is what it is. I think there's a lot to build on going into the new year. Uh, I think, uh, you know, there's some guys that you have some real question marks going you know, forward, like Farouk, for example, and the performance that he put out there and um, hopefully he can rebound off of that. But um, you know, there's, it's kind of a bowl game, you know, at this point in college football, they're not meaningless because the players are excited to be there. The coaches are excited to be there. I think everybody's giving the best effort that they can, but there's just so much thing, so much that changes between that final regular season game. And then the, the bowl game that it's hard to say, these are the same teams that they were in the regular season, even Arizona to some level lost a few guys. So it, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like, whatever. You know, Adam, it feels like we've talked about this each of the last couple of seasons. Every time that we come on to do an episode after a loss, it's probably a good thing that we record these episodes at least two to three days after the fact that we, you know, calmer heads prevail. We can kind of take a step back from it and really evaluate what the game was, what the performances was, both from the players, but also from the coaching staff as well. And, you know, truly, you know, try to dissect and, you know, make true of what, what actually went down. And, you know, it's never as good as what you think it is. It's never as bad 
as you think it is in the moment. You know, coming out of this game, there was a lot of wild off the wall takes about this team. Some of the players is Jackson Arnold the guy uh, after just one start? Is Brent Venables in over his head in year two? You know, he's got 10, 10 losses in two years. Seth Luttrell, you know, one one game calling an offense that's not even his. You know. Is he even the guy? Kind of feels like Oklahoma fans were right about that. So, again, everybody needs to see this for what it is. This was nothing more than a glorified exhibition that Oklahoma went into with a makeshift offensive line held together with some duct tape. Freshman quarterback making his first career start with a brand-new offensive coordinator, first-time play caller at Oklahoma. And despite all of this, Adam, and OU committing six turnovers, they still should have won this game by double digits. If you go back and look at it, if Farouk doesn't fumble going into the end zone, Oklahoma is up 31-13 to with a chance to put this game out of reach. But coulda, woulda, shoulda, there was plenty of bad to go around. But again, if we take a step back, I think that there's a lot of positives that you can take from this performance going into the offseason. Jackson Arnold, I know there's some mixed feelings right, at, right there uh, out there amongst the fan base, but to me, in a in a guy in a in a game where this kid was making his first career start with you know three brand new offensive linemen, I know that he had a couple of bad turnovers, but again, true freshman, a couple of those reads, he's a half second late. He's going to get better as he gets more comfortable, gets more experience playing Division One collegiate football. But you watch Jackson Arnold, especially in that second and third quarter. This kid has no fear whatsoever. Lets it rip, gunslinger mentality. You can see the tools. You can see the flashes of what has made the, everybody inside this program so damn excited about the future of Jackson Arnold in an Oklahoma uniform. And again, make no mistake about it, the sky is the limit for this kid going into 2024. Kip Lewis is another one who had a phenomenal performance, I thought, at the middle linebacker position. R. Mason Thomas, amazing what it looks like. Finally, finally, when, we saw it. <laughs> we got to see RMT finally healthy, been battering some some nagging injuries over the course of the, uh, of the regular season. He looked fantastic. He's poised to have a big 2024 season. And Again, at the end of the day, you you obviously want to go out there and win your 11th game. You want to carry that momentum going into the offseason. But we've seen it time and time again, Adam. In my opinion, bowl game performances, whether you win or lose, have absolutely no bearing on the team going into next season, whether it's uh, whether it's a team that won the Sugar Bowl over Atlanta in 2014 then went 7-5 and five the following year, uh, or a team that uh, you know got their ass kicked in the Russell Athletic Bowl by Clemson and then the fast forward to the next year, Baker Mayfield leads them to the college football playoff. So, again, take it for what it is. Uh, there are some some glaring uh, weaknesses, some things that I think Oklahoma really does need to take a step back and evaluate going into next season or maybe for the better part of this offseason, which we'll touch on here in a minute. But, again, at the end of the day, you you flipped the script. You went six and seven a year ago. You turned it on its head. You go ten and three this year. You can definitely tell that the culture is taking root. There's improvement, especially on the defensive side of the football. Oklahoma's got their guy at the quarterback position with elite skill talent all the way around on offense. And now it's going to be on Bill Beanbow to see if he can't uh, patch up this offensive line and get him ready to go for 2024. You mentioned the turnaround from going six and seven to going ten and three this year. A lot of people mm -hmm. before the season. I would have said 10 wins was enough. I guess that's kind of a discussion that I feel differently about. I think there's no successful season at Oklahoma if you don't win the national championship. But a lot of people said 10 wins would be a good year. <clears throat> that would be an improvement off of the 6-7, and seven, obviously. So we did get to the 10 wins. Wasn't exactly maybe the pathway that we thought we would get there. You lost to Kansas. You lost to Oklahoma State. You lost your bowl game against Arizona. So it wasn't exactly the way that we thought it might happen, but we still got to the 10 wins. So now looking back on Brent Venables, after year two, and I kind of think of his year one almost like it's year zero, but 
How do you evaluate Brent Venables after two seasons? I think I'd give him a strong B plus. And again, we've said on this podcast time and time again, I don't think that people, if you put true serum in their coffee, really, really understood how bad, uh, how bad a shape this program was left with, with Lincoln Riley going out the door, taking Caleb Williams uh, with him. And, you know, aside from the personnel being what it is, you know, catering to the, uh, to the, the program that's completely focused on just simply outscoring the opponent, we're going to score 50, but if we have to give up 45 in the process, we're okay doing so as, as long as we win the game. And, uh, I think that it's pretty clear, it's it's evident in, you know, in the last 24 months, and Brent Venables has, I think, completely changed not just the roster, uh, the talent level on this roster, the the way in which these guys play, the competitive depth, the the aggressiveness, the the uh the passion, the attitude. It's clear that Brent Venables, you can start to see uh kind of his fingerprints on this defense. And that's what's got me so excited going into year three, because if you go back and you look at, uh, you know, some of his previous stops, whether it was year three, the first time in Oklahoma or year three at Clemson, once he gets his guys, his first couple of recruiting classes into their, you know, first, second and third year in this system, that's where you really start to see this defense, you know, take off. And Woody Washington making the announcement a couple of hours ago, he's coming back for one final year. Oklahoma's going to be returning 10 of 11 starters going into their inaugural season of the SEC. So again, I'm, I, I'm not one of those guys that is, I'm, I'm not quite there with you, Adam, and saying that if Oklahoma doesn't win the national championship, it's a complete failure. I get where you're coming from in that sense, because at a place like Oklahoma, that's what the expectation should always be. But I also think you have to be you have to be a little bit more, I don't want to say grounded is the right word, but you kind of need to take a step back and look at what Brenton inherited, the turnaround and the shift in the focus that he's building going into you know year three now. I think it's pretty clear that, you know, Brent has got this program moving in the right direction. It just kind of comes at a point in time where now, you know, 10 wins in the Big 12, that's, you know, that's really, really good. That's an average year at a place like Oklahoma for the last 20 plus seasons. But going into the SEC with the way that the roster is currently made up, particular, you know, on the line of scrimmage, and we'll touch on Bill Beanbow here in a second. Um, there, there is a little bit of cause for concern going into next year. And, you know, it's going to be on the transfer portal remaining days. It's going to be on this class of 2024. Some of these uh, new, you know, early enrollees coming in, are they going to be able to make an impact and provide some of that added depth getting into the rotation? Uh, but make no mistake about it, I think that Brent's doing a hell of a job, and um, I'm excited about what this program looks like going into 2024. I want to articulate this as best as I can. I don't think I'm going to be able to, but – when I talk about, hey, every year that doesn't end a national championship at Oklahoma is a failure, I, I don't expect that to happen. It's, it's what should happen, I think, but not what will happen in most years, if that makes sense. So I, I do have like a grounded reality in the sense that I don't, ex I don't think we will win the national championship every year, but I think we absolutely should win the national championship every, every year because that's our standard. Like, Anything less than that is not good enough at a program like Oklahoma, in my opinion. It's been far too long since we've actually won the national championship. I was seven years old when it happened in 2000. I'm 30 now. Like, that's the longest stretch of, of not winning a national championship in this program since, I think, our very first national championship back in, uh, in 1950. That's insane. That's unacceptable, mm -hmm. in my opinion. So, I, But also at the same time, and I don't know if this is going to sound like I'm speaking out of two sides of my mouth here, I, I'm still okay with Brent Venables. I, I still think he made progress in the right direction. We saw, I think, a better overall uh, in-game coaching uh, this year than we did a year ago. There's still some things he needs to clean up. There's far too many penalties that are a result of what's happening on the sideline with the coaching staff that are shooting this team in the foot in some cases. 
And we said after Bedlam, when OU lost their second game, Brent went up to the mic in the post game and said, Hey, the margin for error for this team is, is too, is, you know, really small. You can't be making mistakes. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, your coaches are doing silly things on the sidelines that are adding to that uh, and, and erasing that margin for error. So there's still a long way to go. We talk a lot about how a lot of coaches in their second year as a head coach, they win a national championship. I know that trend's probably going away with the way the playoff is now, but we had seen that previously quite a bit. So mm-hmm. did he make, he made a jump in the right direction. We're going to need to see an even bigger jump going into next year. And so I'm, I'm happy, but I still, I'm still wanting a lot more. I think you make a really good point about, you know, undisciplined being the key word, you know, kind of like what we've seen all throughout this regular season. You know, Oklahoma was a, was a team, Adam, that led the Big 12 in penalties. And you combine that with the fact that they, you know, they, they racked up seven more in the bowl game. But uh, again, to kind of to kind of go against you here a little bit, I don't think that there's any more obvious of an example how it's how it's clear that Oklahoma has made a shift. Uh, and, you know, whether you want to call it philosophy or, you know, the, the outlook on the program, but, you know, used to during the Lincoln Riley area and even some during the late Bob Stoops time, if Oklahoma lost a game, it was simply because the defense, you, you know, put, play, you played a poor brand of football, you know, gave up too many big plays, was undisciplined, missed tackles, you know, lost at the point of attack where they were unphysical. And now you just look at this uh, this season, you know, you go back over the last four months and again, miss, missed opportunities is the biggest thing that comes to mind. You any time at a place like Oklahoma where you're undefeated going into Dallas, going into the Texas game, you beat Texas in the Red River rivalry, and you come out of the Cotton Bowl undefeated for the rest of the, going into the back half of the regular season, expectations don't change, but it becomes a lot more realistic that, okay, this team can climb to that ceiling, climb to that level of expectation that we lay on this football program each and every year. So, yes, coming out of the Texas game, when Dylan Gabriel leads him down that final drive to win it with the pass to Nick Anderson, yes, going into the following week against, you know, going into the bye week, I I flat out said it. Expectations were college football playoff or bust for this team going into the back half of the season. And they just simply – I don't want to say they laid an egg, but you know, you lose a game on the road against Kansas. Danny Stutzman didn't play. You lose on the road to to Oklahoma State. Danny Stutzman didn't play. All three of these losses, Adam, it's not the defense that that shares any of the blame on this. The offense was the side of the football that that failed this team. Uh, all three of those uh, of, of those losses this season. So again, a little bit of a shift compared to the Lincoln Riley era now to Brent Venables. So, but again, at the end of the day. We knew that if this team was going to be as good as they possibly could be or this football program can get back to that level of dominance like we've seen at Oklahoma for decades and decades upon decades, with Brent Finnables driving the ship, you know that this was going to be a defensive-driven football team. And I think that that's what we're getting back to as we go into 2024, that defense going into next season, Adam. Expectations, that should be the best defense that Oklahoma has had since probably, what, 2012? Maybe maybe 2009, if you want to go that far back. So again, it's it's moving forward. It's all on Jackson Arnold and this offensive coaching staff led by Seth Luttrell, Joe John Finley, and Bill Beatonball being able to. I don't know if it's if if it's wrapping this thing up in duct tape, doing whatever you have to do. Because I think if if Bill, if Bill Beanbow can get this offensive line figured out, then I think Oklahoma ha- could have a very good 
inaugural season in the SEC going forward. But again, just kind of comes down to can you pull one or two more guys out of the transfer portal? Can you develop some of those early some of those guys that are going to be early enrollees once they get on campus, like an Eddie Pierre Louis or a couple of guys like Daniel Akinkumi or a um uh, uh, Eugene Brooks, who have just had phenomenal weeks at the at their All American games from all the practice clips and everything that we've seen from some of the reviews. But again, we can use this as a transition in the Bill Beanball conversation because I I'm one year away. I'm going to say that I'm going to say that we talked about it going into this season. I, Bill Beanball is, is not on the hot seat going into this current season that we're finishing up right now because the. The proof is in the pudding. He's a fantastic coach, fantastic developer of young talent, but you can't knock, you can't dispute the claim that the recruiting is not where it needs to be with regards to other programs within the same conference, within the other programs that are blue blue bloods in this sport. And for Oklahoma to get to where they want to go, the offensive line talent has got to take a step up to follow some of the other position groups that we're consistently seeing a climb. Uh, in the overall, you know, whether it's recruiting rankings or just overall skill talent uh, that they bring into Oklahoma. Well, yeah, and I guess the question is like, and there's two sides of this argument in the OU fan base right now. It's, well, you know, the offensive line really didn't perform that bad throughout the year. And yeah, Bill Beanbow always figures out a way to get things done. And Mm -hmm. yeah, like look how good Eugene Brooks and Daniel Akinkumi look in these all-star camps and games. And tremendous evaluator i well i mean if he was wouldn't he have got wouldn't he have gone after these guys first rather than going after casey poe and caden massey and grant bricks and harrison utley who's a hometown guy his mom works for the athletic department why would he have gone after those four guys first struck out on all of them and then shifted to some of these other guys like i don't know i mean they do look good in these camps but they're the shiny new toy right now we're not even talking about a guy like Logan Howland, for example. We're, we're not talking nearly as much about Heath Ozida, really all that much. Josh Bates gets a little bit of buzz. I mean, those were your guys last year. None of them played this year or really did anything. So I don't know. I, I'm not buying that like these new guys that are going to come in and they're automatically going to be, hey, here's here's Daniel Akinkumi. He's like all you know Big 12 left tackle or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm excited for the kid. I think he's going to develop into something pretty good at OU maybe be the next first rounder that Bill develops, but Mm -hmm. I'm not going to put an expectation on him to do anything as a true freshman. That's very hard for an offensive lineman to do. So you you look at the situation and yes, Bill does a good job of getting his guys developed at a certain point, but the depth is just not there. And that, I feel like that has come back to bite OU consistently um, in the fact that when one guy goes down, you're shuffling constantly. It takes you a few games to get going. And we looked at the beginning of this season, and OU mm-hmm. wasn't able to run the ball very well at all. It was really, what, after the Kansas game that we kind of figured out how to run the ball? <laughs> yeah. yeah I, well, and we say that year in and year out. That, that's kind of the uh, the theme with Oklahoma's offensive line play for the better part of the last decade is as long as we have it figured out by that second Saturday in October, we're going to be fine. Well, I'm sorry, but at a place like Oklahoma – that shouldn't be the expectation. You should be able to utilize the offseason, spring football, summer workouts, fall camp. You should be able to have five, six, seven offensive linemen that are you know ready to go once you hit the ground running in week one that can start off on a strong note, being able to run the football. And again, I don't, I don't want to sit here and just continually bash Bill Beanbow. And maybe the frustration is more so with Beanbow's inability to consistently bring in elite talent 
instead of it, let me back this up. He's one hell of a developer. I want to say that first and foremost, but we need the four and five star talent to be able to consistently come in as freshmen, not in rely, not rely on Bill using two to three years uh, to develop a three star to the point where he's only serviceable as a player for one to two years. So again, I'm not trying to sit here and say that he's not a good football coach. He is. He's done a lot of good things. Look at the NFL payroll uh, within some of the NFL offensive line. Um, But again, make no mistake about that. That is the position group that is the most glaring and the most obvious to me as needing to take a significant jump in the next one to two years. Because if you want, if Adam and all of our listeners that are listening to this podcast and watching on YouTube, if you watched either one of those semifinal games yesterday, particularly the Rose Bowl, Alabama, Michigan, I'm sorry, but Oklahoma's offensive line, they are nowhere close to being on the same level as those two programs right there. So, again, if you want to be able to consistently compete in the SEC, find yourself in a 12-team playoff, You know, not just making the playoffs, but winning one or two games, getting back to competing for national championships, the offensive line play has got to take that next step. And, again, make no mistake about it, we've kind of – you know thrown bill over the coals you know the past couple of months with the offensive line recruiting maybe he you know maybe he struck lightning again with some of the evaluation of some of these kids like a eugene brooks or daniel akinkumi eddie pierre louis is a guy that many people think will have an opportunity to come in and compete right away as a true freshman but make no mistake about it when you turn on the tape you watch michigan you watch georgia you watch alabama i know that oklahoma has you know been up there you know, for the better part of the last two decades competing with those two teams. But make no mistake about it, when you turn on the tape and you watch these two offensive line plays or watch these two or three programs' offensive line plays, outside of the Joe Moore Award winner that we had back in 2018, I'll throw in Baker's Rose Bowl 2017 team, 2019 with Jalen, it's just simply not good enough at a place like Oklahoma. And we've got to strive to get better and get back to the you know that level of uh, offensive line play because that's what it's going to take, not just to not just to win a national championship, Adam. But I'm sorry, but just to be able to compete in the SEC and win, you know, not go seven and five, because that's damn sure not the standard at a place like Oklahoma. But to consistently win nine, ten, even eleven ball games, uh, Oklahoma's got to make some changes, you know, within their recruiting pitches. Maybe they've got to change their philosophy when it comes to NIL, uh, throwing some money around. Um, I'll let you lead off on that one. I mean, just to wrap up, offensive line thirty fourth both in rushing yards per game is where you finished and in sacks allowed. Now I know not all of that is offensive line. Some of that's on the quarterback, the running backs and so forth, mm-hmm. but it is a, a big indicator of where that offensive line was this year. Just like good, better than average, I guess, but not what it should be at OU. And I, I think a lot of that is depth related. You know, you, you have some guys that are, are contributing and if they go down with injury, you don't have anyone to really fill mm-hmm. in there. Or you don't have someone to push them in practice, or you don't have someone to beat them out in the offseason to take that job away from, you know, somebody that wasn't that starting group necessarily. So uh, we need to build up that, that depth uh, considerably uh, to really, I think, get to where we need to go. Because you talk about seven wins in the SEC. I know that expectations and my own reality are going to have to adjust because you're putting all these power teams into the same conference. It's going to be a lot more NFL-like, and I hate that. I, I still want perfection to be the thing. I think that's a differentiator in college as why it's a more interesting product is you can have a perfect season. Uh, Washington or Michigan is going to have that. And I think that's going to be a thing of, of a past era of college football. Now, I think it's going to be very hard to go undefeated. So I'm going to have to adjust my expectations on that. But still, seven wins, it's not going to be enough in the SEC. OU's going to have to step up not only what they're doing in practice on the field, 
uh, the way they coach. But like you mentioned, recruiting, NIL, we hear that OU's playing the game, but yet we're constantly losing guys to Missouri for money reasons. We're losing guys to uh, other schools for money reasons. And I think I think we still need to adjust of like, hey, like this is the price of doing business in college football these days. Adam, let me pose this question to you because this has been something that Brennan Venables has talked about since he stepped foot off the plane, you know, in you know, becoming the head football coach at the University of Oklahoma. He's always talked about having a program that is based on relationships and not being a transactional type of program. With the NIL structure the way that it is right now, without having any rules, any regulations, not having, you know, uh, you know, a uh, <laughs> a higher power, you know, truly overseeing this. It's kind of a free for all right now that has turned NIL into pretty much what we thought it was going to ultimately end up becoming, but not what it was intended uh, to be when it was laid out. Is uh, I know that Oklahoma is playing the game. They are they are throwing around money. Make no mistake about that. The collectives, the you know, the programs, the university, the donors, they are they are moving mountains to be able to you know put together bags of cash to be able to seriously take care of both existing players, uh, but we'll also bring in 2024 guys, 2025 transfer portal accommodations. But as good as Oklahoma is doing in that, it still feels like we're behind the eight ball compared to some of these other programs that I'm sorry, just don't have the, they don't have the tradition. They don't have the winning success. They don't have the, uh, the, the talent, the accolades to go with a place like Oklahoma. I'm sorry, but the university of Missouri, or the University of Colorado should not be on the same playing field as a place like Oklahoma when it comes to a kid truly trying to make a decision. This is why this is where I'm going to go play football. I know the priorities have changed. I know that facilities. Uh, uh, I know the facilities. I know that you know college towns, different things like that, winning historic traditions. I know that it's not as much of a factor nowadays as it was, you know, used to be, unless you're, you know, Nick Saban or Kirby Smart. There's a lot of other external factors that, you know, really kids kind of prioritize when they make these decisions to go play for certain schools. But it's just kind of hard for me to sit back and look at a guy like Chris McClellan that enters the transfer portal from the University of Florida, Oklahoma kid from the 918, grew up in the city of Tulsa, and in, where there's a clear need for, uh, you know, interior defensive line play at the University of Oklahoma. You know, he's a guy that would have an opportunity to come in next year and, and at the bare minimum be part of the two-man rotation. And instead of coming back home, he chooses to go to Missouri and play for Eli Drinkowitz. That just doesn't sit that just doesn't sit right with me. Oklahoma should never find themselves in a position like that. And and the way I view this, and I don't have any like this is not me claiming to know any knowledge of how the numbers win or the situation. This is just me theorizing in my own thoughts of I think and to use a, a, a fake number, let's say Missouri gave him $250,000 and that's what their offer was. And then OU looks at that and goes, I, what I think happens is OU looks at that and goes, oh, why would we pay that for somebody that's probably just going to be maybe a second stringer, you know, for us? Like, we're just not going to do that. Well, it's like, okay, yeah, they, they value him a lot more than we do, but I don't know. We have to, I mean, we, we just can't let a guy like that go to Missouri if he's willing to come no. to OU and he could be a difference Espe maker. In especially... Some especially when they're on your schedule next year. Exactly. And I, I kind of look at that and go, okay, well, if you don't think he's worth 250, I think you just have to reset your expectations. And it's very hard for me to say this because I'm going out and spending other people's money and saying, and saying this next statement, but 
okay, bring him in at 250. That's now your your benchmark for a maybe a backup defensive tackle. Maybe you start paying DJ Terry 400 at that point. Same thing with Caden Green. Like, hey, if he's asking for 650 and you're concerned about, okay, what's that going to do in the locker room when he's making that much more than the rest of your offensive line? Well, that sounds like a sign that maybe you raise all the other offensive linemen up, you know, to 400 that are around him. Things like that. And I, I, I think it's just the way that college football is at this point. Like, we can't sit here and say, oh, he's not worth it based on what we're currently paying everybody else around him. Like, I think we have to change our mindset around a lot of this NIL stuff because other schools like Ole Miss, Missouri, that have smaller fan bases, less history, um, you know, similar or smaller alumni bases. Um, in, in the case of Mississippi, a poorer state, like there's not as much money flowing there. There's no reason that someone like that should be, um, you know, outbidding OU for mm-hmm. not just Walter Nolan, but all sorts of different guys that are transferring to Ole Miss or transferring to Missouri. Like it just feels like we're not playing the same game as everybody else. No. And I mean, and that's the name of the ball game. You either, you either play the game, you either adapt, you, you try to mold your, I don't, and I don't want to say you mold your program because I still think that, you know, as we sit here in 2024, I, I still think that the name of the game in, ter- in terms of building sustained success for your football program, I still think it comes from the, the high school recruiting ranks uh, that's where you build the foundation of your program. And I always kind of thought that the NIL was – or not the NIL. I always thought that the transfer portal was going to be an opportunity for some of these football uh, programs to be able to kind of use it as a plug-and-play type thing. Okay, we've got a hole at outside linebacker. We lost a couple of them to the NFL draft. Okay, here's a guy that we can that we can pull from Georgia. Here's a guy that we can pull from Michigan that can come in and you know take one of those spots. But it just kind of seems to me like high school recruiting, especially with some of these programs like a Colorado who took less than 10 high school commitments, you know, in the class of 2024 or a place like Ole Miss that doesn't value high school recruiting as much as others. Instead of using those resources for the high school kids, they're essentially throwing the high school programs to the side for the most part. And they're using a lot of those NIL and collective funds. Um, you know, to basically say, okay, this is the this is the entire budget that we have. Once the transfer portal opens, we'll see who jumps in this. And okay, there's the number one offensive or defensive lineman in the country from Texas A&M. Let's throw a shit ton of money over at this kid's direction. Let's bring him in. He's going to be more impactful than you know any high school kid that we could possibly bring in, or a guy that's been in the program for two years, but his but his ass has been on the bench, hasn't been contributing in any way. So again, I see how the game's being played and you kind of have to applaud Lane Kiffin for, you know, seeing kind of what it is where, you know, his running backs coming back, you know, Jackson darts going to be coming back for one final season. This is really kind of Ole Miss pushing in all their chips, no pun intended uh, to where they can seriously, you know, put themselves in position to make a run towards a national championship next year. And again, it doesn't always work out. Texas A&M has proved that time and time again. The person with the biggest picky bank doesn't always, um, you know, lead to having a football team that equates to the most wins. So again, it's a double-edged sword, but you've got to be able to put yourself in a position to where you play the game because if you're not going to pony up and pay some of these kids to come in and compete for your school, well, then in fast forward to the fall, you're going to be lining up going against these guys, and Oklahoma's going to be making those trips to Columbia to take on Missouri. They're going to be going up to Oxford to take on Ole Miss in the Grove. So, again, call me crazy, but I think that Oklahoma seriously needs to maybe take a look in the mirror and figure out, are we truly doing things the right way from an NIL and a transfer portal process? I'm not sitting here saying, if you're listening or watching, I'm not sitting here saying that Brent Venables is going about this the wrong way. No, I think that he is because you build this thing from the ground up with the high school kids, but 
I just don't think that you should ever really be in a position where you you sit there and say, okay, five-star offensive lineman in the portal, three years of experience. Eh, he's probably asking for a little bit too much money. I'm not going to go with it. But also at the same time, look at what you have on your current roster right now. Look at some of those holes. Because I'm sorry, but the current makeup of this roster right now, we'll see how you know a, a full offseason plays into this. But I'm sorry, Oklahoma's current offensive line room it's not going to get you to a point where Oklahoma can seriously compete for, you know, compete for, you know, the SEC next season, or you might be able to find a way to backdoor yourself into a 12 team playoff. The schedule's too hard. The competition's too deep. You got to make some changes. And you talk about the relationship and how, how Brent Venables wants to build that foundation of the relationship first. That works great in recruiting. Like look at the high school recruiting. Things are going great. We have three straight top 10 classes. That's something Lincoln Riley never did. There's a ton of balance, both defense and offensive skill makers in mm-hmm. those classes. It's I, I don't think it works so well when you talk about the transfer portal because that's mm-hmm. a, a very narrow window for a lot of guys. They're maybe taking one visit or not even any visits at all. And they're deciding on where they're going. Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't think that's the best approach to that yes you're going to win your championships based on what you get in your high school recruiting classes but you're also going to get that much closer by the transfer portal and how much success you have there so we can talk go ahead look at look at michael Penix at washington yeah or jared verse at florida state i know they didn't make the playoffs but he's a big Mm -hmm. piece of why they went 13 and 0 so Mm -hmm. there's pieces out there you can find them um or you can choose to Like you said, I don't know if they just determined that, hey, we're not going to pay as much as what someone like Walter Nolan or LT Overton or any of those guys that came out of A&M maybe wanted or or even like a Bear Alexander a year ago. Maybe he's not the right character fit, but just there's there's guys out there. They're rare, but you have to be willing to play the game, and it doesn't feel like we're playing the game necessarily. Let's talk a little bit about defense, though, because that's obviously been a conversation every offseason since Brent Venables has been here is, how good can this defense get? You mentioned the 10 out of 11 starters returning in the uh, 2024 season going into the SEC. And looking at the stats, you know, OU finished 123rd in total defense in Brent Venable's first season, progressed up to 78th in total D, shaved off seven points per game this season as well. And now you look at, okay, hey, you've got all these guys coming back. You've probably got two all SEC first teamers and Danny Stutzman and Billy Bowman heading into the new year. You've got uh, Dejon Terry returning. So... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's, I, I don't know if this is a top 25 defense still, but you'd like to think they still make another big jump forward going into SEC. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it earlier in the episode. We've seen it time and time again, the track record of Brent Venables. It's it's there. You can go back and look at the statistics. Year three is ultimately when his defenses make the biggest jumps over, you know, the entire time that he's at a, is a defensive coordinator or a coach at a program. So again, make no mistake about it. And I think that that's why it was so pivotal that you got a guy like Billy Bowman and Danny Stutzman, and even a guy like Dejon Terry uh, to, to be able to come back where you've got three guys right there in the middle of your defense within all three levels that are going to be able to come back. And, you know, not just because, you know, two out of the three are going to start out the year as preseason all Americans, but also, you know, even more, impactful than just their play on the field you know one year from now but I think just talk about what it does for some of the younger guys in the room the fact that you're going to be able to have a Robert Spears Jennings or a Peyton Bowen or a Jaden Hardy some of these young guys that are super super talented they're going to be able to come in and watch how a guy like Billy Bowman a crafted veteran has been around the program for a long long time how does he go about his day-to-day business what does he how does he study uh, the, the playbook how does he watch film what's he doing in the weight room what's he doing during his downtime to 
that's allowed him to get to this level of, of success and, you know, being, you know, an All-American type player going into 2024. And I, I think that leadership is the biggest thing out of anything, being able to get some of these guys to come back. Woody Washington, you know, I, I again, give this kid credit. I don't think he gets the flowers that he truly deserves. You can't, you can't, you know, put a put a value on how big it is having Woody Washington and Gentry Williams coming back next year going into the SEC because, you know, if, if you've watched any football within that conference, the skill talent in that position, it's it's every week. There's there's no downtime. There's no Kansases. Uh, you know, there's no Iowa State. You're going to have to bring your A game. Not on our run. schedule. Maybe not on, on our schedule. schedule. Yeah, we can. <laughs> I don't know. We, we can save that for the offseason. That'll be a fun little debate. Um I think Texas fans are kind of licking their wounds right now. Couldn't happen to a better program. Do we even want to talk? Did you see that video of the uh, the fan sitting right next to his little boy? If you haven't, if you guys haven't seen that right now, I, I would just go search Texas fan and you'll see what we're talking about. Couldn't happen to a better program. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm very excited about this defense going into next season. You talked about the statistical jump going from 123 to 78. The, the impact that that's going to have having those guys returning for another year. We talked about the power line coming in, uh, you know, as true freshmen, the David Stones, Nigel Smith, Jane Jackson, a couple of those guys look like they could suit up and play right away uh, going into next season. Um, again, I'm super excited about it. And the crazy part about it is I'm not so much worried about the defense going into next year as I am about the offense. And if you would have told me three years ago that I would be saying something like that, I would have called you crazy, but that's where we're at right now, and that just kind of goes goes into what we've been talking about time and time again, how Brent Venables has his fingerprints on this football program, and you're starting to see some of the changes. The roster's getting more talented. The The depth is starting to become you know, more of a pivotal thing at all positions across the board. It's just a matter of right now, can Jackson Arnold and this offensive line to go with arguably one of the best wide receiving cores in the country going into next season. Taylor Tatum, Gavin Sawchuk, Javante Barnes. It's going to be a fun. It's going to be a fun next uh, next eight or nine months um, to see how this uh, coaching staff pieces all of these things together. Because make no mistake about it, if Bill Beanbow can get this offensive line group gelled, I think Oklahoma could have a pretty successful inaugural season in the SEC. Yeah, the defense, like you mentioned, didn't lose us a game this year. And that's kind of somewhat how situational how the game rolled out. But at the same time, I think they could have helped put the offense in a better situation if they could have gotten some more stops against Kansas mm -hmm. and Oklahoma State uh, or, or Arizona. I know they're putting bad situations in some of those games, but um, still could have done better. And so, yeah, you like the fact that, okay, they're going to come back with 10 out of 11 guys. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have RMT, uh, R. Mason Thomas, hopefully fully healthy. And so he fills that 11th spot really effectively, or maybe PJ, PJ. out of Aware, uh, fills that role effectively, or maybe there's someone in the portal. We should still be looking for some portal guys. Uh, we'll see if we get some new additions here, maybe this weekend, but overall, I think you like the traje trajectory of where this defense is headed. So that takes us to, okay. Something that we, we asked on Twitter earlier was who needs to take that leap this off season that maybe becomes an all American. And we did get some, some answers on Twitter. I'll read through a couple of these. Uh, Tiz says Gentry Williams specifically because you know, his level of play when he's healthy is not that far off from um, probably an all-conference type player, but that's another leap to be potentially an All-American. And if he is, then that means he has a healthy season, and that would be pretty important for, uh, like you mentioned, going up against uh, all those skill position players that are going to be in the SEC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, make no mistake about it. And especially when you look at some of the teams that's on Oklahoma's schedule next season, a player like Gentry Williams 
if he's able to, you know, have surgery this offseason, be able to go through, uh, he's probably going to miss quite a bit of spring practice. Um, but ultimately, you know, he's a guy that's played quite a bit of football. Getting back, getting him healthy, getting ready for summer workouts. That way he can go into fall camp as, you know, the clear cut, you know, uh, number one cornerback opposite of Woody Washington. I think that, you know, having Gentry healthy, fully ready to go, having him being able to stay on the field for all, you know, 15 games next season, that's going to go a long way and ultimately deciding on how good of a season Oklahoma's defense is going to be able to have next year. Um, so, yeah, Gentry Williams is a really is a really good pick. Tiz, nice job on there. Um, Adam, as we go down the list here, Joshua Wilson and Jackson Huffman on Twitter said that Jacob Sexton is the player that needs an All-American type leap this offseason. And I think that they hit this one right out of the park, especially when you look at the – the guys that are currently in the in the offensive line room right now, I know that Spencer Brown, the offensive tackle for Michigan State, I know he's coming in from everything that's being indicated. He's going to have an opportunity to earn that starting tackle position opposite of Jacob Sexton. But with some of the elite pass rushers that are in the SEC and some of those maulers you know, on the interior, Jacob Sexton is a guy that's got to be able to use these next six or seven months, especially with Jerry Schmidt getting into the weight room, getting stronger, you know, becoming more polished as a, as a, as a pass blocker. Um, this is going to be a big offseason for, uh, for Big Sexy, um, and we'll see what he can do. I love that nickname. We should be using that more often. And he's going to be the left tackle. So uh, Mm -hmm. that's the expectation, at least, that he'll be protecting the blind side of Jackson Arnold. So that'll be very critical. And if he makes a big leap, um, that would help tremendously. Uh, I like Coach Godwin saying DJ Terry. We talked about him earlier. He's a guy that will have, you know, a lot of experience in SEC going into this year. But if he makes that All-American leap, it'll be a sixth year of college. Not a lot of guys are taking that big of a leap in their sixth year. They're kind of what they are at a certain point. And I thought it was really impressive this year. He had a lot of good moments. But, hey, if he can do that even more in 2024, that would help tremendously. If you have an All-American on your defensive line, on your interior defensive line, paired up with guys that we've already talked about are already going to be All-SEC first team in Billy Bowman and Danny Sussman, that mm-hmm. would be tremendous for this defense. I think then we start going, okay, maybe this defense did take a leap from 78th overall in the nation to number five or number six or something like that. If someone like him or anybody else on that defensive line probably takes that leap and we have an All-American on that unit. So I like that one. How about another one here uh, from Hayden Nichols, Kanai Walker? I mean, Woody Washington comes back. Gentry Williams has been up and down on health. Like your best ability Mm -hmm. is your availability. So maybe Kanai Walker has the opportunity to take that leap. Yeah, interesting point made there by Hayden um, on Twitter. That, that's definitely very interesting because Kanai Walker was actually, I think, the fourth corner uh, off of the bench this year behind Makari Vickers, especially early early on in the season. He found his way onto the field as the as the year kind of went on. A lot of it had to do with Ginger Williams not being healthy. Uh, Makari Vickers was banged up quite a bit. So uh, again, Kanai Walker, you know, he's he's got all this all the physical tools that you could possibly ask for in, in a DB. You know, six foot plus, two hundred pounds, uh, re- really good speed. Um, but again, I I think that Hayden, this is a one where if Oklahoma is going to be the type of defense next year that we hope and expect them to be you would kind of hope that Kanai Walker does not have to be part of that equation because Woody and Gentry are, number one, both staying healthy, but they've also taken that next step, and they're you know getting one year better uh, as Oklahoma goes into the SEC. And a uh, friend of the podcast, Jordan Esco, as we kind of round this thing out, Adam, his two people, it's the two Ps, P.J. Adebore and Peyton Bowen as his two guys that they need to have that All-American leap going into the 2024 season. This is clear-cut. As, uh, as what Jordan's making it out to be, Adam? It is. I mean, 
spot on for me. I, I, I'm trying to think of how to how to word this appropriately here because I'm not out on either of them. Peyton Bowen, I thought we saw a no, lot of great things God, this year. No. I think he was a little dinged up, and so we didn't see what maybe he could have been, and I think he'll be probably phenomenal uh, next year as he starts to get a lot more playing time. PJ, an interesting story here because, and I, I, I should have gone back and listened to the episode before the season when we predicted, okay, how many sacks would he get as a true freshman? I think we probably put that number somewhere around like four, five, six, and I was kind of more on the underside, and you were more of the overside. He finishes the year with one and a half. Uh, that one sack, uh, the the one he got solo was against Tulsa. Six tackles, total tackles on the year, three for loss. Played in all thirteen games. I don't know what his snap count was. Probably somewhere between ten to twenty per game. You mentioned him before the Alamo Bowl as, hey, here's the guy that I really want to see make the leap uh, from the regular season to a bowl game that we often see a lot of younger players make. We didn't see that. I don't even think we should have been talking about him as a guy that would take a leap between that. I think he should have already made that leap. Is he a newer player to football? Yes. Am I giving up on him? No, I still think he'll be good. I don't know. I just, I'm kind of wondering there though. I'm a, I'm a little bit wondering. Am I crazy? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Talk me I, out of it. I think that we are just barely scratching the surface. I think the PJ is just starting to figure out one, how you play defensive end at the college rings. Because I mean, if you go back and you look at this kid's story, this was a kid that didn't play football consistently growing up this was a kid that as he got towards kind of the so middle we were part, wrong then we were wrong before the season yeah i think I, I think again we we were caught up in the moment maybe it was unfair because you got the five star you got you know a top 50 player in the country one a top five player at his position maybe it was a little bit unfair to throw those expectations on a kid like this but make no mistake about it when you look at some of the you know the best defenses that oklahoma's had in the last 10 15 years to me it all starts with having a dominant pass rusher, a guy off the edge that can consistently get to the quarterback, striker, oboe, Benito. You look at some of the other programs that are, you know, constantly finding themselves, you know, competing for national championships. You just look at Alabama, you know, Will Anderson, Dallas Turner. Look at the success that Ohio State has had, uh, you know, with the, with the Bosa brothers. You know, a couple of the guys that are currently on campus right now, JT is one. So make no mistake about it, that is the biggest, that is the toughest position to recruit because it's a position that is in the highest need, and it also has the opportunity to be the position that can have the biggest impact on the defense in terms of getting after the quarterback consistently. So make no mistake about that. This is a big offseason for P.J. He knows it. The coaches know it. And I think that him combined with Jerry Schmidt, who's going to be putting that kid through the ringer for the next seven to eight months, I think that this is a big offseason. I think that you're going to see a nice jump for P.J. going from year one as a true freshman uh, going into year two, he's going to have an opportunity to, you know, kind of assert himself and, you know, share that uh, that you know heavy uh, amount of starting snaps uh, with R. Mason Thomas, Ethan Downs. Uh, PJ should be that third guy in that room uh, that can find himself in the mix. I I agree with you. Um, can I take it one step further while you make that thought? Good. And this is this is no shade being thrown at Ethan Downs. Fantastic player, Oklahoma kid. The the Oklahoma football the program is going to be in a worse place when Ethan down when Ethan down leaves, him doing the horns down <laughs> all throughout that ceremony last night fantastic loving, but here's all I want to say on this, in a in football as highly talented when you look at the size the measurables the skills there should be no reason why Ethan Downs is keeping PJ off the field going into next season. 
Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. I was kind of thinking about that as you were going uh, through your, your first mm-hmm. set there, but I, I feel like PJ should be walking in that locker room and pointing at Ethan and pointing at R. Mason Thomas and anybody else on the defensive line saying, hey, I'm coming for your snaps. I'm coming for your snaps. You're not going to see the field. Get used to the bench. Like, that should be every young guy in that <laughs> football program. It, it should be. And and I hope he's I hope he's able to accomplish that. And I agree with Jordan and what he's saying here in that, yeah, like we need someone like PJ to make that All-American leap. We don't need, uh, you know, it, it will be progression if PJ goes out there and, and does the production that, that Ethan Downs did this year. I'm, I'm looking at his stats uh, right near, uh, right here. 29 tackles, four and a half sacks. That's a great year for Ethan. We'd Absolutely. love to see, you know, Absolutely. more guys that are getting four and a half sacks. But mm-hmm. we, you know, if, if PJ goes out and is getting 13 sacks and, you know, 40 tackles, that's an All-American. Um, and that is mm-hmm. far more significant than just becoming, you know, kind of a solid role player. I don't, I don't even think PJ was that this year. So I'm rooting for him. I want him to get there. But I have seen lots of other five stars, especially defensive linemen that are freaky, that just don't, don't do a whole lot. And so I don't think he's that. I, I'm not saying that. I just, I want him to take that jump. I want him to make the full jump, not a half jump uh, or anything like that. I, I want guys like Ethan Downs, as much as I love Ethan, to be shaking in his boots going, okay, I got to figure out a way to make sure I don't lose too much playing time because PJ's coming on. And so, you know, uh, I just want let the, me, I, I want the best case scenario there. Let, let me ask you this. And for all, our, all of our viewers on YouTube right now, chime in as well in the comments section. Adam, watching those that college football playoff semifinal games yesterday, and again, I know we already beat Texas. We've seen that. Oklahoma, when Oklahoma shows up with their A game, they can play with anybody in America, especially when they take care of the football but particularly when you watched Georgia this year, you watched Alabama, you watched Michigan and the Buckeyes of Ohio State. Do you feel better or worse about Oklahoma coming out of 2023 in terms of the the trajectory of this program moving forward, of getting back to competing for national championships? Or do you still think there's a huge gap between where Oklahoma currently is and where they need to get to, where they need to continue to climb to get back to that level? My biggest question and concern is mainly around cleaning up your own mistakes and not being yourself. And we didn't make progress in that this year, in my opinion. Uh, we made a lot of progress on just the defense improving. The offense looked pretty solid, I think. I, I think the offense will be continue to be pretty solid, but we just we got in our own way. And for a guy in Venables who preached details and discipline, we're still not getting all of those. We're not getting mm-hmm. all those details and disciplines down. We're we're not we're not, uh, we're just constantly shooting ourselves in the foot there. So I have questions around that because I, I don't know how much that can change. Uh, you know, there's guys that are going to get out there that are going to help erase some of those details and, and undisciplined play. But um, I don't know. I, I still have, I still wonder that. I don't think we're further away. I don't think we're closer. I think we're just kind of in the same spot, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that we've closed the gap within the last 12 to 18 months because I never believed that with Lincoln Riley as the head coach, particularly towards the end of his time here in Norman, Oklahoma. And again, we got to stop bringing this guy up. But again, I I think that it's fair to do so when you make this comparison. With the direction that Oklahoma is trending right now, getting back to playing that type of, you know, physical, you know, you know, gritty, tough, punching, relentless, suffocating defense like we've seen at Oklahoma over the course of history. For Oklahoma to get back to winning a national championship, especially coming out of the conference that they're heading to, 
Oklahoma needs to continue to move in the direction that they're in right now. The talent is continuing to go up in terms of the recruiting, some of the guys that they're bringing in, especially within the front seven. Um, and again, Oklahoma is never going to struggle with recruiting elite quarterback play, elite running backs, elite skill talent out on the perimeter. It's just a matter of can they continue to stack recruiting classes again. Rents brought in three top eight classes all you know for the first three years that he's been here. It's just a matter of now can we can we use those guys uh, that are coming into their second and third seasons uh, and see if we can't figure out a way to uh, kind of turn that corner and take it up one more notch. I shared this with you via text the other day. I think it was an Ohio State just just a regular old fan on Twitter who basically said. You know, just questioning with Ohio State, they're kind of in a similar situation as OU. Season didn't yeah. end the way they wanted it to, and they have a lot of question marks there. And basically his statement was, are we going to make changes that get Ohio State back to the top, or are we just the new Oklahoma? And that hurt. That hurt because it's true. Uh, I'd like to think that we are up there with all the other Blue Bloods, but there's definitely a difference between where OU is and where Alabama is and where Georgia is, where even Ohio State and Michigan are. And, and OU's got to close that gap. And here's the challenge is you've put yourself in a hole because this was a year you could have gone to that 14 playoff and you could have had a chance because these teams are not the same teams that they normally are. And in fact, you avoid Ohio state, you avoid Oregon, you avoid Georgia, three very highly elite talented teams. And, you know, OU could have fit right in there and played with any of those teams. We saw that mm -hmm. against Texas. So you blow an opportunity and now you go into a 12 team playoff era where you're never going to avoid Georgia. You're never going to avoid Alabama. You're never going to avoid Ohio state. You're probably never going to avoid Oregon. You're going to play every single team that is built and constructed better than Oklahoma. And so <laughs> mm -hmm. I, it, in that way that college football is changing, not, not anything to OU's fault. It just feels like a missed opportunity. It feels like um, we are further away there. Yeah, and looking at the comments, Robert makes a really good point. He says, "Look at the streak that Georgia just went on with a walk-on quarterback. You can't tell me there's an off that their offense is the reason that they just did that, or you can't. But I ain't buying it. I think that that's a really good point because, and again, you got to give Kirby Smart and this coaching staff a lot of credit because they've essentially taken what Nick Saban has done in Alabama through the first you know ten years that he's been there, and they're essentially just replicating it. Once you once you're able to Get your program to a point from a from you know recruiting that you're able to consistently bring in top five or in these guys' cases top three recruiting classes time and time again. Your roster is so damn stacked from top to bottom, regardless of the position that you don't need you don't need to have a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback to go out there and win yourself a national championship. Sure, your quarterback's got to be good. And Stetson Bennett was damn good. Carson Beck had a phenomenal year. There's probably not a fan base that woke up this morning. You know, maybe outside of Florida State, that was more upset with their current, you know, the the current um, predicament that they find themselves in than the Georgia Bulldogs. I still think that they're probably the best team in college football. Uh, but again, this this just goes back to to repetition. Give it time. Allow Brent and this coaching staff to keep doing what they're doing. Bring in these, you know, these highly talented level classes. And my favorite part about what Brent's doing, and I'll put a bow on this and send it back over to you. The best thing that I like about what Brent's doing compared to years past with some of the recruiting classes like we saw from about 2016 to 2020, you had top 10 recruiting classes, but you climbed that high in the rankings because you had four or five guys, per, per, most likely it was a number one or number two quarterback in the country. You had a couple five-star wide receivers. You had a five-star running back. 
And that kind of tilted the scales a little bit. It kind of made those numbers a little bit skewed. Whereas now these classes that Brent Venables has been bringing in for the last three years, the talent is damn good, but it's also spread out along all 22 positions uh, on the field for Oklahoma. And I think that that's something that if Brent can keep, keep doing what he's doing and the, the combination of Seth Luttrell and Joe John Finley combined with Jackson Arnold at the helm leading the show, I think Oklahoma's in a good position moving forward. Real quick, do you have plans for January 6th? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, I feel like this has got to be a basketball spin. I'm not buying it. It is basketball. You, it is a basketball. You're watching OU basketball. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. You're watching OU basketball as they, they tip off with Big 12 play. OU faces Iowa State. Uh, only three minutes left in the show here, Tyler. You know, conference play starting, it's going to be a little bit different than in years past. You've got an unbalanced schedule where there's there's too many teams. You're not going to play everybody home and home. But 10 home games left for OU in the Big 12 Conference. Mm-hmm. It's going to be tough to protect home court. You've got both Kansas and Houston coming to uh, Norman. Those are going to be really tough games to win. But, you know, you'd like to say, hey, protect home court, steal a couple on the road. I think your best chances are probably going to be Oklahoma State and then UCF. Uh, you unfortunately don't get to play West Virginia, who's the worst team in the conference on the road. Mm-hmm. Kansas State. That's always a tough play in the octagon there. And I, I think by the time OU plays them, they'll be back to their their normal footing there. So really it's just, hey, um, go out there. Here's step one. One game at a time, defeat Iowa State. They're a solid program. Uh, we've had trouble with them in the past. But get off on the right foot in Big 12 play. Don't mm-hmm. mess around. And uh, you know continue these, this momentum as you're 12-1, and one, ranked number, I think, 11 in the country right now. Continue that momentum and don't let it be just – Hey, here's the high water mark of the non-conference play. That's that's where our best basketball was was before January first. Yeah, I mean you you make a really good point, Adam. I, I I can't say it any better than that. And you know this is a basketball team, twelve and one on the year, a top fifteen program right now, nine and zero at home. So they're doing a fantastic job of protecting home court. Uh, and you know we we say this each and every year, but it you know it makes all the difference in the world, guys. Go out to the LNC, support these guys, create you know, a, a, a home, you know, home arena type atmosphere, make it difficult for some of these teams and coaches that are coming into play uh, Oklahoma. And this is going to be a nice little stretch, Adam, where I think that I, I feel like we know the identity. We know what we've got in this Oklahoma basketball team led by Porter Mosier. But this is also a basketball team, Adam, that still hasn't played a true road game through the first two months of the season. They're 12-1 and on the year, 9-0 and at home. The other four games were a 3-1 record at a neutral site. So, again, Oklahoma's going to take on Iowa State January 6th, this upcoming Saturday. And then you've got back-to-back road games in Fort Worth against the Horned Frogs, and then you travel up to Lawrence, Kansas, to take on the Jayhawks on a Saturday. So I think that this next three-game stretch, you, you want to get off on a good start, protect home court, knock off the Cyclones, and then I think you truly kind of find out What's the mental makeup of this team as you go on the road and back-to-back Big 12 games? What's going to be hostile atmospheres, especially up in the fog against the Jayhawks, a place that Oklahoma hasn't won since what, Adam? You were probably just learning how to walk. It's been not even not even born. So yeah, not even born. So again, it's going to be a nice test, but make no mistake about it. Porter Mosier's team—they're playing a good brand of basketball, and I think that these guys are both athletically at the level that they need to compete at a higher level in this conference, but I think that also the mental makeup. This team's a lot more battle-tested. They're a lot more uh, you know, sound between the ears. Um, and, again, I'm excited about it. It's the best basketball conference in America, bar none. Make no mistake about it. The fact that you added BYU and Houston into the mix as well, it's going to be a fun, fun springtime uh, covering Oklahoma basketball. I can't wait to see what it's going to look like. 
We ran out of time tonight, uh, out of time tonight to discuss further, but we'll dive into basketball a lot more as the season continues, as well as Diamond, the Diamond Sports. Sports. Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm excited for it. We've got some some fun stuff that will be released there shortly. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at The Mainline Pod. You can send your January 6th suggestions to Tyler at TylerBurton7, and we will see everyone again next week for the next Mainline.